0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with one of Trump's new targets, who Trump's lawyers named in court filings asking the Department of Justice for documents to support a lunatic conspiracy theory that our first guest today encouraged violence on Capitol Hill on behalf of the deep state. Joining us is John Nichols, who is The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. Then we'll examine reports from Egyptian and Jordanian officials that Secretary of State Blinken leaned on the Jordanian and Egyptian leaders to allow Palestinians to be expelled into their territories. Joining us is Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He's the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was president of the Middle East Studies Association and was an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 until June of 1993. His books include The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017, Brokers of Deceit, how the U.S. has undermined peace in the Middle East, and the Iron Cage, the story of the Palestinian struggle for statehood. We'll discuss his article at the Los Angeles Times, how the U.S. has fueled Israel's decades-long war on Palestinians. Then finally, with fossil fuel lobbyists vastly outnumbering climate scientists, activists, and indigenous peoples at the COP28 climate summit, led by the head of a Petro State oil and gas company, We will speak with Susan Joy Hassel, the director of the non-profit organization Climate Communication. She publishes the series Quick Facts with the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, (SciLine) on the connections between extreme weather and climate change. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is John Nichols, who is the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols. It's an honor to be with you, my friend. Well, thanks for joining us, and my friend Paul Newman used to pride himself on the fact that he was on Richard Nixon's enemies list, and now you are definitely on Donald Trump's enemies list. Um, Apparently. You you have been named in court filings by Trump's lawyers asking the Department of Justice for documents to support their lunatic conspiracy theories that you encourage violence on Capitol Hill. On behalf of the deep state I yeah. have no idea, John what is going on here?
1: <laughs> well, um, you're right. my name turned up in the filings. I have to be honest with you um, I, I I wasn't singled out there were I think they had thirty six requests or something wow. like that for all sorts of wild things on Antipa and Nancy Pelosi and uh you know. Government agents and all, just all sorts of stuff, but my name was there, and uh, and so uh, apparently they uh, Trump's people imagine that somehow I might be an alibi for him that that you know the troubles on January 6th weren't sparked by Donald Trump but were sparked by someone like me, and the problem with that is that I wasn't in Washington on January 6th. I was in Madison, Wisconsin. The better part
0: of a thousand miles away. Oh yeah, but that's just nitpicking, John. <clears throat> <laughs> I mean, you, you know, the QAnon have got you cold. Well, they've got you. They, they've got you on tape. <laughs> I mean, I Clay so. Higgins, this this ridiculously ignoramus from uh, Louisiana, was recently questioning the head of the FBI, saying to him. What about them ghost buses? And and the FBI director, know, when he thought he was talking about the movie Ghostbusters, but he meant ghost buses. And then he went on, Higgins went on to explain, saying saying that the FBI sent all these buses full of FBI provocateurs, ghost buses, to Capitol Hill to initiate the January 6th um, insurrection. So, is this what you call. A psychiatrist called projection because lately what Trump is doing is he's now saying that it's the Biden crime family not the Trump Kushner mm-hmm. crime family and that Biden wants to destroy american democracy and bring about fascism which is exactly mm-hmm. what Trump wants to do and has made clear he plans to do
1: well um first and foremost Look, I, I'll be honest. With you. I think you can always find wrongdoing or problems in just about every White House, uh, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, history doesn't history doesn't bode well. And so what you're always asking is, are these people um, engaged in activities that are damaging, you know, not just the public trust, but the democracy itself? Is there is there a threat there? And as you know, because we've done interviews many, many times. I've argued over the years pretty bluntly that I thought Donald Trump was threatening, you know, to the democratic processes of the country. I was an advocate for his impeachment and I've been very, very critical of him. And I guess some people think that's why, you know, I got targeted or whatever in in the list. I don't know that that's the case. I mean, it may just be, um, you know, crazy conspiracy stuff or whatever, but the bottom line is this. Um, There are, there there are real concerns about what Donald Trump's done and what he continues to do. And those are legitimate to discuss. And um, if somebody wants to discuss what's going on with Biden, they can. But to my view, the, the real areas of concern are much more with Trump than, than with Biden.
0: Well, that doesn't mean that they're not going to impeach him. It looks as if uh, the new mm-hmm. House Speaker... Mike Johnson is going to go ahead with an impeachment inquiry, uh, which Mm -hmm. is obviously the the step before impeachment. So isn't it pretty clear, John, that uh, Mike Johnson is doing Donald Trump's bidding, that Trump wants, he wants Biden to be impeached because he's been impeached? You know, I think
1: that there's an argument to be made in that regard. And I'll tell you this, um, uh, Donald Trump, relationship with Mike Johnson goes back a, a pretty good distance. And it's important to remember that it was Mike Johnson who was making a big effort uh, back in 2020, the end of 2020 started 2021 um, to get members of the house to sign on uh, for Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. So it's not like uh, Johnson's been a, a historic good player on some of these democracy issues and and I think that, you know, look, this is what you're looking at here is a situation where people do play politics with impeachment. And as you know, and I'm I'm a historian of the, of the process. I wrote a book on it and I've I've probably written it's probably in the hundreds of articles on the impeachment process, not just in the current moment, but going back decades. And what I can tell you is that it has Become increasingly a political tool as opposed to a tool for presidential accountability. And that's a dangerous thing, right? When you play games with it um, and and don't take it seriously, do try to just use it to you know score a political point. I think that diminishes our ability as a republic to hold presidents to account. And to my view, that's one of the things that has fed into what Arthur Schlesinger Jr. used to refer to as um, the imperial presidency, right? That uh, if a president should be impeached, then it should happen quickly and efficiently and, and you know, based on, on real strong premises, real strong uh, and legitimate arguments. And uh, when it doesn't happen, that damages the process because you don't get accountability when you should. But by the same token, when you try to use impeachment as just a tool to to make a, a political or an ideological argument that also damages the process right and the end result is that uh we're now at a point where uh you know you have doing impeachments i guess but what we lack is a real constraint on the presidency a, a sense of uh you know what the presidency should be and and what the limits should be, as you know, I've always argued that one of the key limits should be on declaring war. You know, presidents shouldn't be able to do that. They should have to go to Congress. If they don't go to Congress, I mean, that's something that you explore on, for purposes of accountability. And the same goes for democracy issues. If a president is damaging to democracy, threatening to the, the, very, the very processes by which the will of the people is heard, well, that's a point at which you consider it.
0: Well, but Donald Trump has made it clear that on day one, if he's reelected, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. I mean, that's not democracy. That's fascism.
1: Yeah, that's incredibly dangerous uh, political positioning. And it's it's one that I think as a country we have to talk about a lot more seriously. This is 2024 shaping up as an incredibly significant election. And I know... That there's always folks that are going to say to you, "Well, this is the most important election in history," um, but I think there's a growing consensus, perhaps on the right and the left, that you know 2024 is going to be an election that pretty much decides you know where this country is going to go, uh, whether it's going to maintain you know some of the basic premises of a democratic republic, or whether it's going to stray uh, into territory that we have always at our best. Um, seen as dangerous and, and antithetical to the American experiment. And so uh, things couldn't be clearer. <laughs> you know, I, think, I think this is one of those moments in history um, where an awful lot of crazy stuff will be said and done. And you know, we started out this conversation looking at, at one element of that, right, with people going after me um, in, in, based on fantasy. But um, when we think about all the things that are going on, I think what you end up with is an understanding that um, we're in a very, very perilous and challenging time as a republic. And it's in such a time that people ought to you know, step back, take a deep breath, think seriously about where they want their country to go. Politics is too frequently treated as a game and uh, a game in which you, know, you kind of want to destroy the other, right? And you want to believe that the people on the other side are the worst folks in the world. And sometimes that happens on the, on the left as well as the right. But when you've got someone running around who is actually saying that they might want to, you know, crack down on their political rivals using the force of government to do so um, that's a point at which you want to, you want to pause no matter what your partisanship, no matter what your ideology, because it undermines the basic premises of the process itself,
0: but surely more needs to be done than taking a deep breath. I mean, we <laughs> have we have to basically jump in the ring, take the gloves off, get serious. I mean, Liz Cheney has made the the point, which I think resonates, and that is mm-hmm. that we are sleepwalking into dictatorship.
1: Yeah, when I say take a deep breath, I'm not saying you know like stop or, or halt. I may basically, that's, when I talk about taking a deep breath, that's for folks who may not agree with me, right? For folks who um, may think that we're still in a, in a kind of standard political mode and that things are, are, have maybe gotten a little crazy, but the, they're going to ultimately be okay. Um, what I'm saying is those folks have to pause and, and think more seriously about, you know, what's going on and, and how you might, uh, might choose to cast your votes. And choose to to participate in the process. But yeah, for folks who are concerned about democracy, for folks who do want to make sure that, that this country goes forward as a democratic republic with a left and a right, with Democrats and Republicans and third party folks all competing on the basis of their ideas. Um, if you're somebody who believes in that, then I think yes, this is a time to have a sense of urgency and, and I certainly do. I mean, it's it's what I've written about now for decades, and you know, we'll continue to write about because I think, you know, you can't you can't be casual about this stuff. Um even when things seem absurd and even when things seem uh you know kind of just you look at it and you, you, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, when you're in a moment like that, the, the most important thing is, again, to pause and, and think seriously about what's going on. And, my, and this is probably where I'm the optimist. I live in the middle of the country um, in a very divided state, uh, probably one of the closest, closely divided states in the country, Wisconsin. And I can tell you, that I know people who are conservative and liberal, who are Democrats and Republicans and independents. And, you know, we get along remarkably well when we're talking to one another. Where the problem comes in is if we kind of move into our silo and just hear the lies about one another, right? Hear the fantasies and and the conspiracy theories or whatever. When you get into that sort of point, then it becomes much more easy to demonize the other, and ultimately, to assume that there's there's no place for compromise, there's no place for a middle ground, and so I think that's that's kind of the great danger at the moment, and it's the thing that that um, it's really the frame of the 2024 election, and I also think it's one of the reasons why Donald Trump is talking about it. Right, he's talking about it because he knows this is going to be the issue. Right, that Americans are going to be asking, you know, how do we how do we make sure that we preserve a democracy, that we deserve preserve a democratic republic. And he wants to get on the on the right side of that issue by saying Biden's the problem. But you know I can't imagine that that too many rational folks are gonna look at, at this choice and and really believe that Trump has been the good player in this regard.
0: Well but he's, he's got his his agent, if you will, Mark Johnson in charge of the House. It's not just Trump. I mean, Johnson no. is just now releasing the the January 6th uh, tapes, and he's going to blur the faces of the insurrectionists to protect their identities. Yeah. So it's pretty clear what side he's on. And again, he's doing that at the behest of Trump, who has turned these insurrectionists into heroes and martyrs.
1: Well, and that's that's the thing. Look, um, I believe really strongly in the right to protest, right? And I believe in the right to protest by people who share my views and people who don't share my views and, you know, where the line comes and where it's always come is when that protest turns violent, right? When it turns destructive. Uh, and you know, this is, this is what we're talking about. And, you know, I think that that Johnson as speaker you know he's in many senses a caretaker speaker rather than than a leader of the house he hasn't been able to do much as regards legislation and so what do you see him doing he's doing these basically symbolic gestures right releasing tapes or um you know making statements or even uh you know presiding over the removal of george santos from from the chamber Uh, and perhaps that's not symbolic. There, there may be
0: more to that, but at the end of the day, he was against that. Of course. (laughs) I know
1: he was, I know he was, but what I'm saying is when you look at what this house is getting done, what it's accomplishing, it's a pretty short list at this point. Right. And so when you're not accomplishing a lot, you tend to go for bombast for theater, right. For controversy, because it creates the illusion that, you know, something, something's being done. Right. It's it's the it's sort of what you see sometimes on cable TV where two people are yelling at one another and you think, wow, this, this must be an important debate because they're so noisy. And then when they actually pause to listen to what they're saying, it isn't there's not that much there. And so I think that's that's what we're seeing with Congress at this point. But, yes, I mean, you're also seeing uh, the last thing that's really important here, Ian, and that is it's sort of the collapsing of the political parties into, you know, uh, personality, individual personality. Uh, focus rather than, you know, the diversity of political parties, which has always been their strength. And the Republican Party used to have liberals, moderates and conservatives. Right. And they disagreed with each other often, you know, quite aggressively. Same with the Democratic Party. Uh, Increasingly now with the Republican Party, it's become such a reflection of Donald Trump that you don't see, um, you know, a willingness even to to say, well, this is crazy. (laughs) We shouldn't do this. Um, and you need that in a political party. The Democrats need that; they need people to say that Biden's wrong on things, and and sometimes you get that. Uh, the Republicans need it as well. And unfortunately, with the Republicans, it really is, I think, at this point, disappearing. Any any sort of you know real real kind of discourse and, and openness to to disagreement within the party, it's it's almost gone. And and Johnson is a you know he's the exclamation mark on that sentence.
0: So just in the last minute then, uh, John Nichols, is there any way then to convince the MAGA people of the absurdity mm-hmm. of, of what you're being charged with and what Trump is trying to find non-existent evidence of that you were behind the January the 6th <laughs> assault and you encouraged it on do. behalf of the deep state? I mean, the point that I would make is that if there was such a thing as a deep state, which there's not... Because if there was a deep state, January the 6th would not have happened in the first place.
1: (laughs) Your point well taken. But look, somebody's always been a a longtime critic of, you know, uh, surveillance and and somebody who's actually defended uh, Julian Assange and, and Edward Snowden and others who've been whistleblowers and who've exposed what governments have done in our name but without our informed consent. Um, I, I think probably the best argument here, aside from the fact that I wasn't in Washington, I was in Madison. But the the best argument uh, is that just think logically: is is somebody who has been, you know, a longtime advocate for left-right coalitions that challenge um, elite power uh, in Washington and, and in, cor- in the corporate world. Um, i 'm not a very logical person <laughs> to to see as as an extension of, of a deep state or, or whatever else, but then remember this this statement has come out
2: this sees
1: or proposes or suggests that you know everybody from Antifa to Nancy Pelosi is somehow in on something, and um, I'm, I've covered politics
0: long enough that I just don't think
1: that um that those are groups that you're going to get together all that often
0: (laughs) well john nichols i thank you very much for joining us here today
1: i am honored to be with you ian don't hesitate to call anytime
0: Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with John Nichols, who is a Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. We went to Station Break. We're back with an examination of reports from Egyptian and Jordanian officials that Secretary of State Blinken leaned on the Jordanian and Egyptian leaders to allow Palestinians to be expelled into their territories. Back on track. Our values are under attack now. And the bad guys get the benefits. The rest of us pay their way. Patriots are under attack just for having their say. While I'm riding down Freedom Road, agents on my tail. You wave a flag on Christmas Day, they'll throw you in jail, hey. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rashid Halidi, who is the Edward Sayed Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He is the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was President of the Middle Eastern Studies Association and was an advisor to the Palestinian Delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli Peace Negotiations from October 1991 to June of 1993. His books include The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance 1917 to 2017, Brokers of Deceit, How the U.S. Has Undermined Peace in the Middle East, and The Iron Cage, The Story of the Palestinian Struggle for Statehood. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, How the U.S. Has Fueled Israel's Decades Long War on Palestinians. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rashid Halidi.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Rashid. And before we discuss your article at the Los Angeles Times, there's an extraordinary revelation that hasn't been verified, uh, but it does seem credible that Secretary of State Blinken leaned on Egyptian and Jordanian leaders to allow Palestinians to be expelled into their territories. And this happened uh, on his first uh, round of visiting the region after the October 7th uh, attack by Hamas on Israel. The sources for this are the Egyptian and Jordanian officials themselves, but I'm surprised that it hasn't gotten more traction. What would explain that?
2: Well, uh, I think reportorial laziness is one reason, and let's say the laziness of the editors and the and the producers in not setting journalists onto this um, because there are stories in the Egyptian press. There are the statements of Egyptian and Jordanian leaders, angry, repeated statements to this effect. Um, and there's a smoking gun in the, um, in the request that the office of management and budget in the white house sent to Congress on the 20th, uh, asking for money for people to, who were who to be displaced uh, from, from the Gaza Strip. Um, It it asked for money to, quote, address potential needs of Gazans fleeing to neighboring countries, uh, said that the crisis could well result in displacement across borders, and said the funding may be used to meet evolving program requirements outside of Gaza. So the the U.S., the administration asked for money for people who were to be forced out of Gaza. And if that's not a smoking gun, I don't know what is. And that's in the budget request that is currently before Congress. That includes $14.3 billion for more
0: arms for Israel. So the idea of expelling the Palestinians or making life so miserable that they're going to slink off into Jordan or, in this case, into Egypt has always been the project of the the right-wing Israeli religious nationalists, but it's never been their stated end goal, even though, of course, Israeli media is rife with these kind of discussions and proclamations. So Israel formally has never said that this is their plan, right?
2: That's correct. No, that is absolutely correct. Nor, nor has there ever been a confirmation from the U.S. government, except in a backhanded fashion when the president was obliged, apparently, in phone calls with President Sisi and with King Abdullah to reaffirm, as has the vice president more recently, that under no circumstances would the United States allow uh, the expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza. Um so it's all, its all. Uh, how should I put it? The Israeli government presumably sent uh, Secretary of State Blinken as their errand boy to Cairo and to Ahmed to uh, pass this on. Um, but it's never been confirmed by our government, and it's certainly never been confirmed by the Israelis that this was their objective.
0: But are you saying that Blinken was an emissary of Israel as opposed to the United States?
2: Well, this was an Israeli request, obviously unless the United States came up with it all on its own. And I, I, given the kind of the background that you mentioned, uh, where thinning out the population of Gaza, which is the term used in one Israeli government uh, official statement, or uh, I think a military official statement, is the origin of it. Right. Um,
0: but what we're talking about, of course, is at the very beginning of the... Uh, October 7th war in Gaza. Now it does seem because of international outrage, and uh, I'm sure the Biden administration is quite aware of the fact that they may lose Michigan and they uh, may lose the youth vote, which they very much depend upon for Biden's re-election. There is a change underway. I mean, the very least of which is uh, on Tuesday, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, announced that they would imposed travel bans on extremist jewish settlers who right. are now attacking right. palestinians and have been since october the 7th i believe 250 palestinians have been murdered by israeli settlers in the west bank since october the 7th
2: so, soldier soldiers they're killed by soldiers and settlers
0: actually so what do you make of that
2: well, I think this is a, it's essentially a cosmetic change, frankly. Um, if the United States wanted to do something about settlements, it could cut off the money from 501c3s that raise most of the money with which these settlements function. I mean, they're subsidized by the Israeli government, but uh, 501c3s, so-called charitable organizations headed by people like Jared Kushner, raised tons of money. For Israeli settlements. You could just uh, turn off that spigot. You could say they're no longer 501c3s, they're not charitable. I mean, they're, they're supporting illegal settlements in opposition to U.S. policy. You could even call the settlers terrorists and say, you know, under the Patriot Act, any support for them is material, material support for terrorism. But the government doesn't do that. They slap a few visa restrictions on a couple of the most egregious violators of the law, people who are the most, you know, brutal or, or the most uh, dangerous of the settler leaders they could do much more. And and, and even the statements whereby the U.S. says Israel must obey international humanitarian law or Israel must do more to allow humanitarian aid to flow into the Gaza Strip is nothing like what the administration could and should do. First of all, it should stop repeating Israeli talking points and essentially supporting every single Israeli war, aim, which it does every time it says anything else. Uh, about humanitarian or international humanitarian law or humanitarian aid uh, the way in which israel is waging this war with the support of the united states and with weapons supplied and ammunition munitions supplied by the united states is a violation of international humanitarian law in terms of the principles of proportionality and the principle of distinction and you you either say that or you don't you don't you don't issue platitudes about israel has to respect international law and say but they are right now They're not. And you have to say they're not and you have to call them out on that. And you have to invoke things like the Lehman Act, which says that weapons not used for defensive purposes. weapons that are not used it's illegal to use weapons for anything but defensive purposes or in ways that violate human rights. I mean there's so many levers the United States could use if it were actually serious in moderating Israeli behavior, which it refuses to use.
0: But is it possible to moderate the behavior, particularly of the settlers on the West Bank? because it doesn't seem like a new front will necessarily open up in the north with Hezbollah, but the most likely scenario for a new front would be the West Bank, because it's a tinderbox, and I haven't seen any restraint placed on the settlers who are running roughshod.
2: On the contrary, yeah. the they're running wild. They and the army are running wild, I and mean, the army is so, carrying but, but
0: out crackdowns. Does that mean that, but does that mean that they want to... The IDF wants to have another front? They got their hands full in Gaza, don't they? I I don't get that.
2: I'm not sure what they're thinking. But I, I, I don't think that the organization or the weaponry or the capabilities exist for anything along the lines of what Hamas was able to mount out of Gaza on the 7th of October, or what Hezbollah in Lebanon is capable of mounting. Uh, The West Bank will, I'm afraid you're right, be much more inflamed and will become much more dangerous as a result of this heavy-handed repression by the army and these quite savage attacks by the settlers supported by the army on isolated communities, Palestinian communities. But I don't think they are afraid of the West Bank exploding in the way in which Lebanon could and, and, and the Gaza Strip has, because I just don't think the organisation or the weaponry or the capabilities exist in the West Bank uh, on anything like the same scale as Hezbollah has marshalled in Lebanon or that Hamas apparently managed to put together in, in the Gaza apparently definitely managed to put together in the Gaza Strip. But but I, I, I can't put myself inside the heads of the Israeli military. I don't understand what they're doing in the West Bank. I mean, part of it is the, is the balance of this Israeli government. Anything that Netanyahu does to rein in Ben Gavir and Smotrich and the extreme right wing of his own Likud party would lead to his fall, and therefore his conviction. And So he's obliged to, to not only tolerate them, but to cater to them in order to stay in power. And I think that's part of what's going on here. It's not an army calculation. It's a calculation, let these people have their head in order to keep me in power. I'm guessing that might be what's what's going on.
0: Well, that's the problem, isn't it? That puts Biden and and Netanyahu on different tracks. Biden wants this thing to be over sooner than later, and Netanyahu wants to string it out because every day that he's the commander-in-chief of a war is a day that he doesn't go to jail.
2: Precisely. Um, and as of this moment in time, it's unfortunately uh, Netanyahu who's in the driver's seat. And uh, it's, uh, it's Biden who's helping to push the car. Uh, Biden has, as so far as I can see, done nothing to moderate Israeli war aims. I don't think that Israel's uh, waging of the war in the southern part of Gaza is any less savage and any less directed at civilians than was the way in which it waged the war in the northern part of Gaza before the brief truce of a week. In fact, it seems to be even more uh, brutal and bloody and, 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 and consequential in terms of human human life. I don't think we had 700 people killed in one day uh, or a 24 to 48 hour period the way we had a couple of days ago in Khan Yunus Rafah and other parts of the South. So Biden has done absolutely nothing, as far as I can see, to restrain uh, uh, what what Netanyahu is doing. And it's Netanyahu, so far, who's been basically spitting Biden's face, even as Biden has embraced him in this bear hug and, and, and endorsed every single Israeli war aim, and almost every time he speaks, repeated almost every single Israeli talking point.
0: Well, privately... While he's giving Biden assurances that he, you know, about pauses and humanitarian behavior and restraining the, you know, trying to prevent civilian casualties, at the same time, Netanyahu is talking to his right-wing coalition and saying to them that I'm your best guarantor against a Palestinian state, while Biden right. is out there saying that at the end of this war we're going to resume efforts to create a two-state solution.
2: Well, I think that ultimately they're on a collision course. The problem is that may not that may not work itself out until well after this war is over and, 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 and when and if there's a change in Israeli politics such that, that this government changes. And that may or may not happen.
0: So in terms of the outrage around the world and growing here in the United States because of the enormous loss of life in Gaza and particularly amongst women and children, why is there such a passionate outrage? For example... During the Syrian war next door, just to stay in power, Assad is responsible for about 500,000 of his own people being slaughtered, along with the destruction of his country. And, you know, nobody said anything about much about the Saudis and their coalition <laughs> killing 300,000 Yemenis. And so, why is it that there's this outrage about Israel, but not about? What other countries in the region have done to their own people?
2: Well, a couple of reasons. I think there are a lot more people here who have a stake in the United States who have a stake in Israel than is the case in yemen or in or in Syria, or for that matter in Palestine. Um, there are a lot of people who have relatives in Israel. There are a lot of people who have friends in Israel. There are a lot of people who feel deeply for Israel and may not have family there. I think the president is one of them. And there are many, many other politicians. Uh, You also have an enormous support for Israel in the uh, evangelical community in the United States, Christian Zionists, who believe that the restoration of the Jews to the land of Israel is essential for the coming of the Messiah. And for these people, Israel must be supported. So there's very strong feeling about anything that happens in Israel among a very broad segment of the American public. In addition, the the united states is involved in israel is involved in this in this in this conflict and in this issue in a way that it really wasn't as directly certainly in either syria or in in yemen now it's true american allies were bombing yemen with american weapons saudi arabia and the united arab emirates and it's true that the united states was a party to the civil civil Syrian civil war um But it it was nowhere nearly as deeply involved as it is in the case of Israel. I mean, you didn't send two aircraft carrier battle groups, a marine amphibious unit and a nuclear submarine uh, off the coast of Syria or off the coast of Yemen. You didn't send uh, tens of thousands of munitions to support one side in the war in Syria or in Yemen. Um, We sent munitions certainly to the Saudis and the Emiratis to bomb Yemen, but nothing like the... The kind of military support the United States is brought to Israel. so uh, Israel is closer to the United States in so many ways, and this conflict is 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 imbricated in American domestic politics politics and has been for generations in a way that nothing else in the Middle East really is. So I think that's that that aspect of it is under is understandable, as is the concern of younger people for whom this is seen as a justice issue, for whom this is seen uh, as an issue alongside other other concerns that they have um, so they increasingly younger people in the United States and many other communities minority communities, many religious groups, uh, Presbyterians and others um, see Palestine as an issue which involves justice and 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 uh, and rights in ways that they're sensitive to and that that affects a huge part of the Democratic Party base. So on the one side you have a lot of Republicans, and a lot of committed supporters of Israel. And on the other side, you have a lot of younger people and minorities, both groups of which feel very, very strongly about this issue, in ways which I'm afraid they don't feel. I mean, the number of people displaced in Gaza now is close to 2 million, maybe 1.7, 1.8 million. The number of people displaced in Syria was in the millions. The number of people displaced in Yemen was in the millions. Um, And that, you're right, it did not strike anything like the
0: same chord with American public opinion. And of course, uh, in the global South, uh, this war is seen as a colonial war. Well, it's yeah,
2: yes, you're right. Go go ahead, sorry.
0: I was going to say so. You know, when when the US was puzzled by why the global South didn't support the US and NATO's position in Ukraine, it's you know (laughs) considerably worse now in terms of US support for Israel in the
2: global South. Yeah, I think it's not a coincidence that with the exception of countries with a colonial past or white settler colonies like Canada and Australia, countries that suffered from colonialism, like China, like most of Africa, like Latin America and so forth, um, see this through a colonial prison. Um, You know, I think many Europeans and many Americans are blind to that. They don't see colonialism as a bad thing or they don't see it at all. And they don't see that that is the, the the perspective through which to view this. And most people in the global South do. It's not true everywhere. I mean, you have an India, an anti-Muslim government, which uh, Hindu, Hindu uh, uh, fundamentalist uh, nationalist government, which, which sees these things through a Muslim prison. And so they're much more sympathetic to Israel, at least the government is. But a lot of Israeli, a lot of Indian public opinion sees things through a colonial prison. And I think that's true worldwide except in the former colonial powers and in in the white settler colonies where, you know, colonialism is a good thing. We have, you know, colonial history, colonial Williamsburg at the period of American history. Colonial, you know, it is not seen in negative terms.
0: So just in the last minute or so, Rashid Khalidi, give us a sense of why our listeners should get your book. Uh, Obviously, it's incredibly timely and it's now out in paperback with an updated version.
2: Right. Well, I, I mean, I think it's important to understand the background of what's happening. History didn't start on the 7th of October. I think it may have been the beginning of a paradigm shift, but that paradigm shift can only be understood against the background of the history of this of this war, and I think it has to be seen as a war on Palestine, and it has to be seen in terms of a settler colonial. Paradigm, and the book tries to lay out why that's the case. I hope it's also readable. It includes a lot of material from my own family and my own personal experiences, and I hope that uh, I hope I hope reader, I hope listeners will be interested in reading it.
0: Well, it's painfully topical because of the tragedy underway. But do you think that there is an awakening going on here, where? To some extent, there's always been a, a narrative of a competition of victimhood between the Israelis and the Palestinians. but now right. it seems to be much clearer who the victims are well
2: I think that I think that, uh, I think that the, the the book does set things in what I understand is the proper perspective, which is that this is not just a war between two peoples, which of course it is, but it's a war in which um, really one side had the great powers, whether the British Empire or whether the United States, on its side. And it was always an unequal conflict. Uh, In a sense, the the tragedies of European history uh, were what drove Zionism. And one of the things that drove Zionism, and there are many other, obviously, motivations for Zionism, but those were tragedies in Europe. And they have been They have led to the visitation of other tragedies on the Palestinians who became, in Edward Said's words, the victims of victims. Um, The problem is that the Israelis are are seeing their victimhood in terms of Jewish history in Europe, essentially. It wasn't, you know, Palestinians who drove all the Jews out of England in the 12th century or out of France in the 13th century or out of Spain and Portugal in in 1492. It was Christian Europe. It wasn't, you know... The Middle East, or the Arabs, or the Palestinians, who inflicted pogroms uh, on, on Jews in, in the Russian Empire, it wasn't it wasn't the Middle East that was responsible for the Holocaust. Or the Arabs or the Palestinians. So that history of victimhood has been transposed to Palestine in a way that really has nothing to do with Palestinian history, except in that it motivated people to do things that led to the victimization of Palestinians.
0: But Hamas did cross the border and kill a bunch of Israeli c- civilians and captured
2: the largest, The largest civilian death toll in Israeli history, in fact. 800, approximately 800 Israeli civilians. Uh, no, no war, none, no Israeli war was many Israeli civilians killed as were killed on the 7th of, of October by Hamas. No, that's absolutely true. On the other hand, no war have as many Palestinians been killed. In 1948, 13,000 or 14,000 Palestinians were killed. Uh, There there are already a couple thousand more than that uh, here in Gaza. Uh, And and, and the war is not over. There will be more, unfortunately.
0: Well, Rashid Halidi, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: You're very welcome.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Rashid Halini, who's the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He is the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was president of the Middle East Studies Association and was an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 until June of 1993. His books include The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917-2017, to Brokers of Deceit, How the U.S. is Under, Mind peace in the Middle East and the Iron Cage, the story of the Palestinian struggle for statehood. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times how the U.S. has fueled Israel's decades long war on Palestinians. We're going to take a brief station break We're back looking into how fossil fuel lobbyists vastly outnumber climate scientists, activists, and indigenous peoples at the COP28 climate summit, led by the head of a petro stake oil and gas company.
3: على الغصن عالي بيتنا يحرق جيل الهوى يا ما عمل فيه
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Susan Joy Hassel, who is the director of the non-profit organization Climate Communication. She publishes the series Quick Facts with the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, Sciline, on the connections between extreme weather and climate change. Welcome to Background Briefing, Susan Joy Hassel.
3: Thanks, Ian. Glad to be with you again.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And the COP28 uh, UN climate talks uh, underway in Dubai started out on a very controversial note because the host of the talks, the president of COP28, is Sheikh Sultan Al-Jabbar, Jaber, is the head of, the, of a United Arab Petro state and also the ceo of the abu dhabi national oil company uh, and apparently there were documents from a whistleblower that indicated uh, that he planned to use the cop28 as a means to make a bunch of oil and gas deals and it seems as though uh, <laughs> the the oil companies and oil and gas companies just flocked to the place and they outnumber now climate Scientists and climate activists, something like four to one, and indigenous and representatives from countries that are being affected by climate change, in in the sense that some of them are in the Pacific Islands are going under because of global warming and ocean uh, level rise. So it's got off to a pretty bad start. But now I think it's pretty obvious what's going on here, isn't it? This this UN climate talk that's supposed to be about literally not just phasing out fossil fuels, but recognizing that we have to stop using fossil fuels and go to alternatives right away. Uh, instead, it's now uh, an opportunity for the oil and gas companies to you know, drag things out, which is essentially their strategy all along, isn't it? Delay and deny.
3: Yeah, yeah well, it's very distressing, to say the least. Um, we do not have time to waste. And we should not have those who have such a clear conflict of interest participating in, much less running, a negotiation like this. So it's obscene. It's the quintessential fox guarding the hen house and, and the very definition of a conflict of interest. So they, the fossil fuel industry is clearly not pulling in the same direction as those of us who want to rein in climate disruption, we know we are going to have to phase out fossil fuels as soon as possible. And yet all the plans of governments and of these large oil and gas companies clearly show that they want to increase production. They're expanding production. And that's that's insane. You know, as we've seen from the recent production gap report from the U.N. Environment Program and the Stockholm Environment Institute, they want to produce, they're planning to produce twice the fossil fuels in 2030. That would be compatible with the 1.5 degree Celsius um, target that we're aiming for. So clearly, we can't have it both ways. They, uh, it's, it's the future of it's the future of humanity as we know it, the future of this planet as we know it, versus the profits of the oil and gas industry. And I, I know which side I want to win.
0: Well, it's not as if Sultan Algebra didn't tip his hand. He uh, was recorded in a conversation with Mary Robertson, the former president of Ireland and the UN Special Climate Envoy, in which he said that if you please... I'll just quote from what he said. Please help me show me a roadmap for a phase out of fossil fuels that will allow for sustainable socioeconomic development unless you want to take the world back into the caves. And then he went on to say there is no science out there or no scenario out there that says that a phase-out of fossil fuels is what's going to achieve 1.5 degrees centigrade. So
3: yes. A... So I saw those remarks, and so did everyone else. <laughs> we all heard him say it on the tape. And, of course, the world scientific community very quickly responded, with saying that all the science, in fact, shows that you don't get to 1.5 without a complete fossil fuel phase-out. So... Uh, He's completely wrong on that. I don't know how he could be so misguided and still be the president of of this COP. But it's very, very clear that this is not having someone like that at the helm is completely unacceptable. And um, yeah, his business about going back to caves is, uh, you know, it's just one of the old tropes that we've heard from deniers of the reality of human-caused climate change for, for decades, and it's absurd. We're not talking about going back to caves. We're actually talking about creating a better world, right? Fossil fuels are not necessary for our standard of living. In fact, they make our air dirtier. They kill millions of people a year. And, you know, as we transition away from dirty energy and towards clean energy, we're going to have a, a healthier, more sustainable world with better equity and all of the things that we want. So they would like us to believe that we need their products. Right? But we don't, we don't need or want oil, gas, and coal. What we want is energy services. What we want is hot showers and cold beverages and mobility, a, pl- a way to get from here to there. And, of course, we want to do that in a way that is sustainable and healthy, good for the economy, good for everything that we care about.
0: But the technology to do all of what you just said, Susan, exists. Uh, electric cars... Exist yeah. and they're getting more and more popular and more and more and more cheaper. Uh, and then now, apparently, wind and solar is cheaper than fossil fuels in energy, in terms of generating electricity. Yeah.
3: That's exactly right. We know, and the data is very clear on this. the The least expensive sources of energy now are solar, wind, battery storage. It's the cleanest energy. It's actually now cheaper to power the world with clean energy than it is with dirty energy so it's as simple as this the world needs an upgrade from dirty energy to clean energy there are new and better technologies and our governments should require their use you know we switched from throwing our toilet waste out the window to indoor plumbing because it was a better way to go we switched from horse and carriage to cars and now it's time to switch from dirty energy to clean energy Now, of course, those who made their living from horse and carriage would be against such a shift, even though it was better for society at large. So we just shouldn't have those with this clear conflict of interest. They don't want their industry to be phased out. They don't want their, but they're not thinking about the greater good. They're thinking about their short-term profits. Now, if we were better at marketing, we would call it an upgrade to the cleanest, safest, least expensive, most sustainable technology because sometimes when you call something a ban or you talk about mandates or phase outs i think it can you know turn some people off but clearly we need to phase out fossil fuels we need to do it in in an orderly way but we need to start by having no new fossil fuel infrastructure no new wells no new pipelines no new exploration because that we already have a huge amount of fossil fuel infrastructure and it's going to take decades for that to be phased out completely. But to spend more money right now to invest in additional fossil fuel infrastructure is nothing short of insanity.
0: But in terms of messaging, it seems that these well-funded fossil fuel companies, uh, starting in the 1970s, took a page from the tobacco industry's playbook and started by sowing doubt and confusion uh, into what is, in fact, settled science.
3: Yes. There's very good very good information on that. It's been documented in, in many books, including Merchants of Doubt, and um, lots of new research showing that. So we know that's true, and that's, I guess, what we would expect from an industry that's only concerned about its own short-term profits. But, yeah, they've known for decades that the use of their products would result in the climate disruption that we've seen.
0: But have then... Do you count a message There's obviously a deficit. I mean, a recent poll uh, at, from the Yale program on climate change communication said that only 35% of adults talk about cli- the climate crisis, at least occasionally. So that's not enough. This should be... Everybody's hair should be on fire, shouldn't it?
3: Well, I agree. Our hair should be on fire because the world's on fire, and we have... There is this problem of people not talking about it, and in the U.S. at least, a lot of that problem is that people don't realize that there's as much support for climate policy as there is. They think there's much less than there is. They think it's a controversial subject, and that's why they don't bring it up and talk about it. But we talk about what's important to us, so we should be talking about it. We actually are seeing an uptick now in people talking about it. We're seeing that people, as they're experiencing extreme weather, like we almost all of us did this past summer, that they um, are talking about it more, that they're making the connections between human-caused climate change and the terribly disruptive extreme weather that we're experiencing. And so we're moving somewhat in the right direction, but we're not moving fast enough. So... Certainly, we need to talk about it more. My colleague Catherine Hayhoe Hayhoe likes to say it's the most important thing we can do is talk about it, because we talk about what matters to us, and that moves us towards policy. But we also have to make other decisions. You know, we have to vote for political leaders who are going to move us very quickly and urgently forward with climate action. We need to... Think about where we keep our money. Are we putting our money in banks that are funding fossil fuel expansion? You know, the four biggest banks in the U.S., Chase, City, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America are the four largest funders of fossil fuel expansion globally. So we need to think about where we're putting our money, what we're investing in. Are we investing in the clean energy of the future or the dirty energy of the past? And so there are lots of things that we can do to make it clear that we understand what's happening and we know what's needed.
0: Well, but a forum, probably the most important forum out there for this discussion that need that you just talked about, that is desperately needed, is the UN COP climate summits. Surely, so the idea that to hijack a climate summit that should be a, a, the main topic should be about getting rid of fossil fuels and and switching to alternative energies because the clock is ticking on whether or not. we'll we'll be able to reverse uh, the changes in uh, our climate because of the burning of fossil fuels, which is at a dire point and a point of no return, according to a number of scientists. So that should be what COP28 is about. So the idea that they've even got as far as they have in, in derailing the central issue is pretty disgusting, really.
3: It is. It's disgusting. It's absurd. It's insane. (laughs) No argument from me on that. The only thing you said that I would disagree with is this notion that we've passed a point of no return. It is not too late. We can't afford to think of it that way. It's a question of how bad are we going to let it get. And every tenth of a degree matters. So every action matters. We need to take as much action as possible. We need to do as much as we can as fast as we can. We need to phase out fossil fuels, deploy clean energy as fast as we can, protect our forests and other natural lands. We need to do everything, everywhere, all at once. And we can do this, and we can create a better world. We are not beyond a point of no return. We've got to do everything we can because every little bit of warming is going to make it, make it worse for us.
0: So, is there some good news here? Because obviously, COP28 is bad news in terms of the way it's been hijacked by the president, who's the head of a petro estate uh, and an oil company. I mean, one Air of ship. the things that, that I heard recently that, you know, may not sound like a great step forward, but apparently the sale of electric bikes is considerably more than the sale of electric cars. And now there are some electric cars. That are as cheap as regular cars. You know, obviously people oh, absolutely af- we can't afford a, f- a Tesla, and I wouldn't yeah. give money to that little <laughs> disgusting right wing troll. So, you well, know, I it's mean, Fiat's got a car, an electric car out now that's very cheap.
3: Yes, we bought a Chevy Volt, and it's very inexpensive. Uh, probably the least ex- one, of, one of the least ex- expensive cars you can buy. Um, most importantly, we're seeing a real uptick in the purchase of electric vehicles of all kinds and the US just passed the 1 million mark for this year for electric vehicle sales there's lots of reasons for hope you know China saw record growth in clean energy in 2023 and as a result its emissions are set to fall in 2024 And it actually looks pretty good that they'll continue to fall thereafter. So this year, 2023, could be the peak year for China's emissions. That's really good news. U.S. emissions are falling, but way too slowly. But because we're deploying so much clean energy, we're setting ourselves up now for future success because renewables are really expanding quickly. We saw a breakthrough just last week in commercial-scale enhanced geothermal energy, in Nevada, in the United States, Fervo Energy started, um, put this new plant online. And it has tremendous potential. You know, we're, we're seeing so much that's going on in the right direction. And I think the really good news is that we can create a better world. We're not talking about sacrifice and deprivation. We're talking about creating a better world, a world that's healthier, that's safer, that's more equitable, that has a, a thriving economy based on clean, renewable energy, we have more walkable cities, we can create that world. We're not talking about what we have to give up. We're talking about what we can gain by taking climate action.
0: Well, Susan, I'm glad we spoke, and um, thank you for joining us here today.
3: Sure. I was happy to do it, and it's um, all work together for that brighter future that we can create.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Susan Joy Hussle, who is the director of the non-profit organization Climate Communication. She publishes the series Quick Facts with the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, (SciLine) on the connections between extreme weather and climate change.